Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. For one school principal in Hartford, welcoming Puerto Rican evacuees has taken on a special meaning. So it's those little things that meant the world to me that, you know, I always say, what we do matters. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll take you behind the scenes at an elementary school where the principal knows about escaping a bad situation. Plus, have you ever gotten a speeding ticket in Vermont? If you have, you're not alone. We'll dig into the speed limits, the speed traps, and where the money goes. As auditor, do you think you rely on that hundred-some thousand dollars? It would be foolish to say that we don't rely on it. We'll also visit a Massachusetts hospital that treats sea turtles. When the water starts getting cold in late fall and early winter, their uh, movements become much slower, their heart rates drop, their body functions in general slow down. And we'll sort through how recycling works. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico, Carmen Julian Cruz, has been visiting Puerto Rican communities outside the island, talking about recovery efforts following Hurricane Maria. On her tour, she stopped in Holyoke, Massachusetts, a city that per capita has the largest population of Puerto Ricans living in the continental U.S. Cruz gave a speech arguing that Puerto Ricans must unite to change the still-devastated island's economic structure. She said that maybe then, decades of an exodus from Puerto Rico would end, and some people would start to return. So it is our duty not to judge the ones that had to leave, but to make sure we work with you in order to produce an island nation where you can choose whether you want to come back. For many of the youngest evacuees, there's really no choice, though. The island was left with many schools being closed for long stretches, and the lack of enrollment now means that nearly 300 schools are closing. In Hartford, Connecticut, another city with a large Puerto Rican population, dozens of new students from Puerto Rico have enrolled. While that meant rearranging classes and getting more bilingual tutors, the process of welcoming the evacuees has taken on a personal tone. As Vanessa De La Torre reports, the school principal is a former refugee. It's Friday! Good morning! Morning, guys. Morning, morning, morning. It's the day before spring break, and the staff at Sanchez Elementary School seem to be in a really good mood. But PTO Secretary Merelis Torres says it's like this every morning. She noticed it right away when her family came from Puerto Rico last fall. They just received you with this smile, with this good morning. Soon after Torres got here with her two kids, it wasn't long before the school hosted a special lunch for the new Puerto Rican families. They had Latin music and food. Arroz con gandule, pernil. I don't know how you say that in English. They make us this Puerto Rican food to receive us, and I start like, crying. Like a lot of the other evacuees, Torres had to flee the island with almost nothing. Sanchez School ended up with about 40 new students from Puerto Rico and gave their families donated clothes, furniture, cookware, and gift cards to help them get settled. But something else really struck Torres. It was how the school made them feel like they were an addition to the community and not a burden. It helped Torres and her eight-year-old son, who had been struggling with all the changes in his life. And he felt good. He said, Mommy, I'm learning English. 
Mommy, I am happy now. Ezra Redzik is the principal of Sanchez School. Thank you, Diana Vea. Great job doing our morning announcements. Happy Friday, crew! Redzik taught at Sanchez before she became principal a few years ago. It's a school steeped in Puerto Rican culture. When Hurricane Maria hit, many of the bilingual staff had to worry about their own relatives on the island. Not only did it impact our students, it impacted our staff members. So, so that was devastating for us. For Redzik, the arrival of the evacuees stirred up some memories, too. Redzik is 36 now, but at around age 8, she became a refugee of the Bosnian War. That's traumatic, leaving what you love and the only thing that you know to start all over again. After fleeing Bosnia, her family lived in Germany for a few years. Redzik would eventually become fluent in German. But the initial transition was rough, and that experience taught her an important lesson on what not to do. I can think of specific incidences when I was in the third grade where I felt very unwelcome, where I felt that that teacher just didn't do right by me in that moment. And, and that's very emotional, right? So, like, I didn't understand the direction. They didn't go out of their way to teach me what it is that they were trying to get me to do. And that, that left some really unsettling feelings where I was like, that was just wrong. Redzik's family immigrated to New York City in 1994 and moved to Hartford four years later when Redzik was in high school. It was in the U.S., she says, that teachers became a positive force in her life. They encouraged her and mentored her. So it's those little things that meant the world to me that, you know, I always say, what we do matters. She learned that stability at home can have a trickle-down effect on kids in the classroom. So at Sanchez School, the little things include a care package to welcome each new evacuee family. And there are big things like donated furniture and mattresses. Sally Vasquez is a school employee who works closely with the parents. So you see over here, we have dressers, we have beds um, that we're going to distribute today. I just received another call that they're going to distribute more furniture so we'll be able to cover the need of the families. That's the sound of third graders pumping each other up to start the day. Half of the kids in this class are evacuees from Puerto Rico. Torres, the PTO mom with two kids, says the thing about Sanchez is that it's more than just a school. It's a family. It's a family. When we don't have nothing, they give us something. Torres says the school is a big reason why she's staying here instead of going back home. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Vanessa De La Torre. Last year, we told you a story about the post office in Durham, New Hampshire. On the wall is a mural that was dedicated by the Women's Club of Durham back in 1959. Each panel covers chapters in the town's history, each scene with its own title. One scene titled Cruel Adversity depicts a Native American hiding behind a bush. He's looking at a colonial cabin and holding a flaming torch. NHPR's Jason Moon talked to Kathleen Blake, a member of the New Hampshire Commission on Native American Affairs. It portrays the colonists as victims. I mean, it could be the other way around. The cruel adversity could be the settlers in the, in the garrison house rather than the Native people who already lived here. Blake and the commission wanted the mural gone, but post office policy doesn't allow for that. Postal Service historian Jennifer Lynch was charged with drafting an interpretive text to provide some context. I tried to show that it was complicated. And there, there wasn't one side, one side is 
always the victim, you know, and one side always the aggressor. It wasn't that way at all. It was a complicated situation, a, a lot of conflict. Lynch's text was supposed to solve this complicated problem, but the New Hampshire Commission on Native American Affairs is not happy. Here's Jason with an update. In a statement, the group says the interpretive text installed earlier this month is not an acceptable solution and that they don't consider the matter closed. The text is meant to add historical context to a section of a mural in the Durham Post Office that depicts a Native American raid on European settlers in the late 1600s. Some have called the image, painted in 1959, offensive for its one-sided depiction of history. A spokesperson for the Postal Service says they're still open to suggestions on changing the interpretive text, but that removing or covering the mural is not an option. The Commission on Native American Affairs says they're referring the matter to Senator Gene Shaheen's office. That's Jason Moon reporting. Coming up, have you ever gotten a speeding ticket in Vermont? If you have, you're not alone. Slow down. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Many people from around our region spend time on the scenic roadways of Vermont. Out-of-towners might not have all the local knowledge they need, though, including where local police are waiting to nab you. In 2017 alone, Vermont police officers issued over 24,000 speeding tickets, resulting in more than $4 million in traffic fines for the state. Now, a quarter of these tickets were given in just three towns, Plymouth, Bridgewater, and Mount Tabor. Emily Corwin, an investigative reporter and editor for Vermont Public Radio, tells us the story behind these three towns and their speed limits in her new series for VPR. Emily, welcome back to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Good to be here. So let's go to the town of Plymouth, Vermont. You call it home to Vermont's most lucrative speed enforcement. Explain what's going on there. That's right. It's it's the it's the town in Vermont that receives the most revenue um, from traffic tickets, and it sort of um, ties with number two Bridgewater for the most tickets written. Um, they're really just neck and neck. They're they're very close to each other, and I mean, there's a bunch of things that happen. It depends on who you talk to. Um, if you you know, everybody <laughs> around Plymouth and Bridgewater knows that if you if you drive through there, you're going to get a ticket if you aren't going you know exactly the speed limit or under. I mean, this is sort of well known um, by locals. And in Plymouth, the select board chair who I talked to, you know, he was really adamant that this is about public safety. He says the road is in bad condition. There are cyclists. You know, he thinks if people are barreling through uh, to, say, the ski mountain and they swerve to avoid a pothole, they could hit a cyclist or the very uncommon pedestrian. And so there's that perspective. Um but there are a lot of other things going on, too. Like, uh, there's, you know, this is a town that used to have a uh, ski lodge. It used to have a store and a school. All of those things have closed. So there's just a lot fewer pedestrians. There's a lot less happening. Um, and the speed limit there hasn't been con- reconsidered in, like, 45 years. And so it can really feel, when you're driving on it, like it's just a throughway. It's just a sort of, like, a you know, the fastest way to get from here to there. And yet the speed limit is quite low. It's 35. 
How do they set the speed limit in the town? All of the roads that I was reporting on are state roads. And to, to set the speed limit, the town has to have a town official write a letter to the state agency um, of transportation. And then uh, there's a whole process that takes place that involves traffic engineers doing a study, making a recommendation. But the thing is that there's this moment where the recommendation goes to a three-person traffic committee. And that committee doesn't have to you know, take the sort of evidence-based study or recommendation. They can also be influenced by townspeople. And that often happens if, you know, during their public hearing, if someone from the town shows up and says, we think it should be lower. You know, the traffic engineer I spoke to said it's, it's actually quite likely if someone shows up and testifies, the traffic committee will do, you know, what that person is recommending. Um, so the, the process has an element of science to it and then an element of politics, I'd say. So in, in the town of Plymouth, for instance, there very well may be legitimate concerns about how fast people are going through the town and they want people to slow down for uh, pedestrian safety, etc. But it does seem unusual from your reporting that the, the amount that the town spent on its contract with the Windsor County Sheriff's Department, about $220,000, is is just about the same amount of money that, that they collected. It, it seems as though, as you said before, Emily, there's a cycle in which the more money that's collected, the more money goes into policing, and the more money that goes into policing, the more tickets they get. Exactly right. And this is this incentive uh, aspect that I was talking about, which, you know, in these towns that write a lot of tickets, you know, in particular Plymouth and Bridgewater, you can look at their budgets and you can see that every year this contract with the sheriff is getting bigger. And it seems clear (laughs) that the sheriff is, um, you know, the sheriff, it's the sheriff who's in charge of... um, you know, issuing the tickets. I mean, it's his deputies, really, who are issuing the tickets. And then he is going to the select board and saying, this is how much it costs to get XYZ amount of law enforcement. And that contract that he gets with the select board, the sheriff gets to take home a 5% cut. This is Vermont law. Every contract that a sheriff gets, the sheriff, him or herself, gets to take home 5%. And so the bigger the contract, the better it is for the sheriff. Um, And in this case, Last year, this sheriff, Michael Chamberlain, took home $10,000 from Plymouth um, and $10,000 from Bridgewater, uh, so each, uh, as, as his personal cut from that contract. And so even though it's his deputies, not he who's writing the tickets, and it's the town, not the sheriff, who is, you know, deciding on how much law enforcement to hire, there is this this incentive for the sheriff to maybe influence those decisions um, because, you know, he certainly does profit at the end of the day from the contract. Sounds like quite a deal, especially one that's written into Vermont state law. So talk right. about the town of Bridgewater. What's different in Bridgewater than, than Plymouth, the, the other town that, that issues just as many tickets? Right. So in, in Bridgewater, you've got an even slower uh, speed limit on you know what you could call a more sort of essential east-west road. And so the speed limit's 25. And this is interesting because it's um, a 25 limit, you know, sort of school zone that was written originally in the 70s. So, you know, the school uh, was, you know, as usual as schools are all over the state, uh, given a school zone speed limit so that when school is in session, when kids are present, when lights are flashing, it's a 25 mile per hour speed limit. But at all other times of the day, it's a different speed limit. But then, I mean, inexplicably, I really couldn't figure out why in the 1980s, this 
I mentioned this uh, three-person transportation committee comes to this decision that just in villages and cities, so not in rural places, um, school speed limits will become permanent. And so this 25 mile an hour, very slow speed limit becomes the 24-7 full-time speed limit in Bridgewater. Since then, some 20 or more, I think it is, schools have closed around Vermont, including in Bridgewater. And so you no longer have a school, but you still have this 25 mile per hour speed limit. It's that zone, just that specific 25 mile per hour zone that you know, vast majority of the ticketing is taking place in. So it's pretty confusing. Like, wh- why would you make a permanent school zone um, that wouldn't be removed when a school closed even? The last town that you visit, Emily, on this tour of the places that write the most traffic tickets in Vermont is Mount Tabor. It brings in over $130,000 in ticket revenue and has pretty low tax rates. Uh, tell us a bit about what you found there. So this was the most fascinating town to me because in Plymouth and Bridgewater, you've you know you've got a sort of evening out of the of the finances here. You've got the town spending about what they make in tickets on law enforcement. So there's no actual profit taking place for those towns. In Mount Tabor, it's different. This is a town of 250 people. It's tiny, and they bring in the third most revenue from traffic tickets. And you know they spend very little on law enforcement. The, they have one share. Uh, I guess he's a police sergeant, and he has. His um, salary is $20,000 a year, and they're bringing in $130,000 in revenue. Um, And so they're definitely making off quite well with this situation. And the town has really among the very lowest municipal tax rates in the whole state. You know, in this particular situation, you've got a case where the traffic tickets are actually reducing the tax rate for the residents. So not surprisingly, when you went to track down Wendell Davidson Jr., who's chairman of the select board in town, uh, he didn't seem to really want to talk to you. Let's listen to a little bit of your, your interaction with him. I'm, uh, I'm doing some, some reporting on um, traffic tickets. And You're talking to the wrong person. I told you that on the telephone. <laughs> oh, I talked to you already. You're Wendell. Yeah, I'm Wendell. You're Wend- you won't talk to me about right. traffic tickets? Why not? Because you're in charge of them. Are you thinking, thinking of a response or are you just ignoring me? Ignoring you. Okay. <laughs> Put that on your recorder. No, I ain't talking to you. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> what, why, why didn't Wendell want to talk to you? So I had actually called him on the phone before meeting him in person, and he had told me, and I said, you know, I'm reporting on traffic tickets, I'm interested in chatting with you. He's not only the chair of the select board, he's a volunteer police chief. So he's definitely in charge of what goes down when it comes to traffic tickets in town. And um, I'd, I'd given him a ring, and he picked up the phone, and he said, don't do that story. He said, go go find another story. Reporters and, love that from my, from my experience. Reporters yeah, absolutely Yeah, I know. Way to get me... <laughs> <laughs> Way to get me curious, for sure. And so so then I went to the, the town meeting, annual town meeting of Vermont tradition, and I saw this fellow. So I just started chatting with him. Um, as you could hear, uh, I hadn't realized it was him, the, the police chief. And when I did, he just he just like literally stopped talking to me. In fact, almost nobody uh, from town government would talk to me in Mount Tabor, except for this one um, town auditor, this woman, Adele Eichel. As auditor, do you think you rely on that hundred-some-thousand dollars? It would be foolish to say we don't rely on it, because we've become, we, we have become reliant, I think. 
I can only imagine that with these lower speed limits and with this aggressive law enforcement, an awful lot of the tickets are being paid by people from that very town. Do you know where all the money's coming from in these towns? Are they out-of-towners like me who are caught unawares driving to a ski vacation and get nabbed? Or are they, they people who, who live right in town who are paying all those fines? I don't have actual data on this, but what I know is that uh, folks in town, if you talk to folks around town in these places, they, they've all paid at least, you know, they've usually paid one traffic ticket in, in their town, and they learned their lesson, and now they, everybody has this thing they do in Vermont where if they know about, uh, you know, a place like Mount Tabor, Plymouth, Bridgewater, they will put on cruise control, and at the speed limit, they know they're allowed to go, and it's sort of a, a way of preventing a ticket. And so a lot of locals have their ways of getting around it. Many people have gotten one ticket. A lot of people don't get any more after that. But I called up a fellow whose law firm does a lot of speeding tickets for out-of-towners. It's sort of an industry he's he's <laughs> created for himself, um, which is, you know, you can, you can dispute your ticket and you can send a lawyer uh, instead of yourself. And um, I don't know how the money works out, but I spoke to this, this lawyer and he was saying, you know, most of his clients are from out of town. So certainly there are a lot of out-of-towners that are getting ticketed. Emily, what have people been saying about your speeding ticket series? I've done a lot of stories that have seemed... Um, really uh, to be about really important things. And it's really struck me how much people experience speeding tickets and feel like they're wrong, like they've been wronged. So that's been illuminating. But, But the two kinds of feedback that I get are, you know, thank you so much for doing this. I feel like I have been stuck in a speed trap maybe once, more than once in the towns you talked about or to other towns in Vermont. And, you know, I knew something bad was going on. And now I know for sure. Um, no, to be clear, I don't think uh, I know for sure something bad is going on. I just know a lot of money is changing hands here. But the other kind of feedback I got was, you know, if this is what it takes to prevent one fatality, then it's worth it. And something that one of the people I interviewed mentioned was, you know, you don't have to give someone a ticket to let them know that they're speeding. And so things like these radar speed feedback signs, um, they're actually very effective in slowing traffic. And then, you know, another fellow I met at Traffic Court was so upset that he had gotten a ticket. He felt that, you know, given the circumstances, a warning would have been, you know, more than effective at getting him not to repeat what he had done and that that would be the respectful thing to do. And, you know, warnings don't bring revenue in. And so, you know, I think I wonder if you were to ask the officers in a lot of the towns in Vermont that are not at the top of this list that I have, you know, are you issuing tickets every single time or are you, you know, giving people warnings? I wonder if that would be different than in the towns that are issuing all of these tickets. Emily Corwin is investigative reporter and editor for Vermont Public Radio. You can find links to this entire series on tickets in Vermont at nextnewengland.org. Thanks so much, Emily. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. Police in Maine are mourning the death of a deputy sheriff who was killed in the line of duty. There's still no clear motive in the shooting death of Somerset County Corporal Eugene Cole. The suspect was captured after a four-day nationwide manhunt. The suspect had previously been arrested in Massachusetts and was expected to appear at a court hearing on gun charges the day the shooting took place. 
Officer Cole was trained in de-escalation tactics, and as he told our reporter Fred Bever, he'd used them successfully during a police standoff two years ago. As Fred reports, Cole considered deadly force a last resort, but it was a tool he recognized police needed to have. That day in December 2016, an armed man from the small crossroads town of Norwich showed up at the local Cumberland Farms brandishing a gun and once police showed up asking that they shoot him. Corporal Cole and two state police negotiators tried to defuse the situation, establishing a perimeter and talking to the man as he paced the store's parking lot. Some of the stuff wasn't even making any sense, but he was just yelling. He wanted him to shoot him. Cole recounted the events in an interview last spring. He said the negotiators tried to distract the man, and at one point he took their suggestion that he put down the gun to talk. He put it on the hood of a truck, but within reach, Cole said. I saw the opportunity. I, I, I told the, my two guys that was behind me to, I said, cover me. I could go low. I knew that he couldn't see where I was at that time, and then... I just did a peek out over the hood so I saw where the, exactly where the gun was and then back down and then back up again. Cole secured the gun, he says. The man started to turn toward him and Cole used his taser on the man. He went down, Cole took him into custody, and the standoff ended. Cole said circumstances and the skills and training of the negotiators came together with his own in a way that ended the confrontation with nobody hurt. But it can easily go the other way, he said. And when threatened, police are justified in using deadly force. We shoot till the threat is over. That's how we're trained. Yet Cole said he'd never shot a firearm at a suspect in his 12 years as a police officer, although he'd used his taser on more than one occasion. And he emphasized that he tried to approach all of the region's citizens as human beings, no matter what side of the law they found themselves on. That's in keeping with what colleagues say was his humane approach to law enforcement. He was a man that just had basic empathy for people. Hannah Longley is a clinical social worker. She's worked with Cole and other officers in crisis intervention training classes designed to improve outcomes in confrontations with people who have mental health diagnoses. And so it just came naturally to him when someone was in a crisis to be able to connect to them on a deeper level and just really be able to build that rapport and connect with them. It helped that Cole, who entered the force at the relatively late age of 49, had deep roots in the communities that made up his largely rural beat. Dan Summers, now the chief of police in another jurisdiction, used to be a local cop working in a small city that fell within the county sheriff's territory. He says many people who interacted with law enforcement, including criminal suspects, would clam up and then ask for coal. Just because they knew him, they felt comfortable around him. You know, you may have another officer uh, who may be uh, investigating a case involving a certain individual, but because they're not Deputy Cole, uh, they wouldn't feel comfortable uh, talking about the case, uh, you know, unless they, uh, unless uh, Deputy Cole was there. It's not clear whether Cole might have been able to bring de-escalation techniques to bear in the confrontation that led to his death. The exact circumstances have yet to be established, but in the earlier interview, he made no bones about the stakes of his profession. When we go to work, we put on a bulletproof vest and a, and a sidearm. Why, why would you have to put a bulletproof vest on, you know? So this is a profession that we've chosen, and we know the rest when we go out, you know, when we go out. So 
like I said, we all want to come home. We all want to go home at night. Corporal Cole was 61 years old. A celebration of his life will be held on Monday in Bangor, Maine. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever in Portland. Coming up, Saving the Sea Turtles. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Now, it might not be warm enough for you to take a swim just yet, but the waters off of Cape Cod are warming up enough for sea turtles to return. It's good news for the endangered species that makes a yearly migration up and down the East Coast. Every year, turtles will get caught in cold waters on their way back south and end up stranded on the shores of Cape Cod, nearly 300 stranded last fall. Last year, Rhode Island Public Radio's Avery Brookins met some of these turtles at an animal hospital in Quincy, Massachusetts. We're revisiting that story to see what it takes to get this endangered species swimming again. A clinical volunteer is checking the heart rate of a Kemp's Ridley sea turtle with a Doppler instrument. Its heart rate is healthy now, but volunteers often have turtles come in whose hearts are beating only five to ten times every minute. That's because of a condition called cold stunning. So the most common reason we see turtles admitted to our hospital is because of this condition. It's similar to hypothermia. That's veterinarian Charles Innes. Because turtles are reptiles and their body temperature is dependent on the environment, when the water starts getting cold in late fall and early winter, their um, movements become much slower, their heart rates drop, their body functions in general slow down, and eventually they're so weak that they get washed up onto beaches. And when that happens around Cape Cod Bay, they're brought here by volunteers from a nature conservation group in Massachusetts. The hospital typically receives two shipments a day that can include anywhere from one to 100 turtles per shipment. Innes says the turtles are placed into cardboard boxes and then lined up throughout the hospital's hallway. We're sequentially going through each case, weighing them, measuring them, checking their heart rates, uh, doing physical exams identifying them as individuals with a um, bracelet around their flipper or a number on the back of their shell. And then they move through our hospital system. The next step is to raise the turtle's body temperature. You open the door. And it shows me an intensive care unit that can hold up to 15 turtles. And each of these crates will slide out. And so we have um, padding on the bottom. The chamber slowly warms the turtles back to their preferred body temperature of 75 degrees. It also controls how much humidity and oxygen the turtles receive. And if the turtles are having trouble breathing, there's a ventilator specially designed to deliver a breath every five or so minutes to mimic their breathing pattern in the ocean. All right, so I think we move them about an inch forward, just mm-hmm. like the legs. Okay. All right, and the leg needle. Senior biologist Yulika Vochal is giving turtle 138, named Geyser, its antibiotics intravenously. And volunteer Sarah Capazzoli is gently grasping Geyser's sides so it can't escape from the exam table. 
Geyser is recovering from pneumonia, which is the most common illness the turtles have when they're admitted here. New England Aquarium spokesman Tony Lacasse says that's because when sea turtles are cold stunned, their immune systems are compromised. And they're also not respiring well. Uh, they're not being, they're not getting a good breath. Uh, they're probably getting some fluid in their lungs, and then they get the pneumonia that will set in, and that pneumonia can sit there for weeks. Some turtles die in the hospital because of their pneumonia, but many others, like Geyser, recover well. Dr. Innes looks at the turtle's x-rays and sees some signs of scarring on the lungs. But he does not have any really obvious um, evidence of pneumonia at this point, which is good because he previously had pretty bad pneumonia, and it tells us that his antibiotic therapy has been working well. Two volunteers place metal buckets of herring and squid on a table. It's time to feed the turtles, which Dr. Innes says is typically a challenge during the cold stunning season. They're not familiar with eating in captivity. They may not recognize the food items that we're providing to them. And so a lot of our time during the day after they're stable is spent with um, volunteers and staff trying to coax each turtle to accept their first food. It can take hours and about 25 volunteers to coax the turtles into eating. This turtle's done feeding. He's one of our really good eaters, so he eats very quickly. That's clinical volunteer Lydia McDonald. She says as the turtles are being fed, volunteers are watching how they interact with the food. So looking for um, use of all four flippers, using, looking to see how well they're turning in the water, if they're able to dive well, um, if they're able to surface well for breaths, that sort of thing. And after about six to eight months, most of the turtles are ready to be released back into the ocean off of Cape Cod, where they can begin their journey south. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Avery Brookins in Providence. This year, some turtles are getting a head start on their trip. The New England Aquarium delivered 14 sea turtles to warmer waters off of Florida. Check out a video of the turtle release at nextnewengland.org. Have you ever thought about how recycling works? Like, what happens to your recycling once it leaves your bins? Or who dictates what can be recycled and, well, what can't? NHPR's Outside In podcast tackles the ins and outs of the recycling industry. Here's co-host Hannah McCarthy. When I was in grade school in Massachusetts, there was this movie they would show us, it felt like at least once a year. The sound of birds singing, trees silhouetted against the sunrise, and then BAM! Huge piles of garbage and bulldozers roaming the hellscape of an endless landfill. And if you think that's dramatic, just wait. That is indeed a recycling song sung to the tune of Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. And then you get to watch a bunch of sketches and video clips about how much garbage we produce and how we've got to reduce that waste. The show was called Recycle This! Exclamation point. The thing was commissioned by the Dow Chemical Corporation, by the way, in 1990. And it might sound dorky. Doc, what? What is all this trash around the DeLorean? Oh, I don't know. But it worked. I wanted to reduce, reuse, recycle. I wanted to save the planet. Around the same time that I was sold on the moral obligation of saving the world from trash, a new way of recycling was born. A technology that would save us from the odious sorting. None of that plastic versus paper versus glass rigmarole. It was called single stream. 
one bin for all of your recycling. That single stream bin opened up a whole world of convenient environmental responsibility. Unlimited by categories, we can keep all sorts of stuff out of our trash cans. And indeed we do. But what if I told you that all of that well-meaning recycling is actually contributing to a major mess? You can see right here, this, this pile is trash. This is all trash that someone has put in their recycling bin, as well as, you know, the things on the ground here. In January, I went to Eco, Maine. It's a recycling facility in Portland, Maine. Katrina Van Heisen took me on a tour of the place, starting with the MRF. That is the consistently funny acronym for Materials Recycling Facility. And here's the thing about the MRF. There's actually a lot of trash in there. But someone put this stuff in the recycling bin. We've got a wood pallet. We've got um, a pillow. We've got a giant thing of styrofoam. We've got a Christmas wreath. You know, these things are not recyclable. And they come to us and humans pick them out by hand. This is called wishful recycling. It's when you throw trash into the bin because it feels better than throwing it into the trash. And this wishful thinking is turning the recycling industry upside down. MRFs are amazing. Little puffs of air controlled by computers eject different plastics off of conveyor belts and into the appropriate bins. And then giant spinning rubber cogs bounce paper from glass and plastic. It's like a kid's idea of a candy factory, but for waste. All of this machinery does a pretty decent job. By the end of the day, it churns out a bale weighing one or two tons that's mostly one kind of material, but mostly doesn't cut it. That moment when you pause with some plastic wrap or an old Barbie or maybe a battery full of toxic chemicals and you throw it in the recycling, that trash is called contamination. Contamination overall uh, is that piece of styrofoam right there, that tiny piece of, of fabric right there, uh, the saran wrap or the piece of paper there. That's really the contamination we're talking about. Contamination is the red sock in the washer full of white shirts. It's the plastic grocery bag in a bale of cardboard. It means that a bale has to be sorted through before the material can be washed and melted down or shredded into pulp. And the way that most of us recycle, single stream, commingled bin style, it leads to plenty of contamination. And the thing is, for a long time, contamination wasn't that big a deal for American MRFs. Because the people who buy those bales of material and turn them into new stuff, they've been okay with the contamination rate coming out of most facilities. And our single biggest buyer in particular was willing to clean up our mess. Was being the operative word here. Because they're not playing ball anymore. Um, it's been bad for a couple of months. It's getting worse. Once it gets really bad, people are going to start screaming when their budgets are upside down. Meet Tony Belanger. He works for Pennard Waste Systems in New Hampshire. Last fall, I called Tony up wanting to talk about leaf collection. He wanted to talk about something a little bigger. This is a dirty little secret, so to speak. I mean, um, it's out there, and people in our industry are well aware of it. Um, but until it hits home with somebody like a municipality or or a big corporation, or something like that, someone who's got some lungs, it just doesn't get out to the general public. 
The dirty little secret is the state of the recycling industry. More specifically, the state of the market. Something has happened to make recycling, well, not really worth it. The bedrock of recycling economics for decades has been that for towns and cities, recycling is cheaper than throwing things into a landfill. So, sure, it made environmentalists happy, but it made the taxpayers happy too. But Tony says recently that's flipped. If he gets stuck with this material um, and it's going to cost him $90, plus trucking to get rid of it, um, and yet he can still get rid of his trash at $65, $70 a ton and dump it locally, that's what he's going to do. That means that your bottles and cans and cardboard that you've thoughtfully tossed in the recycling bin are not guaranteed to avoid the landfill, which is insane, right? I mean, how could all of this be going on without our knowing? I'll be honest with you, not a lot of people care to know the inner workings of the waste industry. Tony's right. I thought I knew how recycling worked. But until you start reading Recycling Today and Waste 360 with your morning coffee, you've only just scratched the surface. They have this picture in their head of, you know, uh, the little triangle on the bottom of a beverage container or food container and say, oh, look at that. I'm buying something that's reusable or recyclable, and, and that's the romantic part of it. One majorly unromantic part of it? All of that stuff that we're wishfully recycling is messing with the industry. Contamination has always been a problem, but lately it's throwing a wrench in the entire operation, like with plastic bags. That's what started all this to begin with, the, the contamination rate, these, these um, mostly grocery bags and stuff. That's right. Anybody who has ever tried to recycle a plastic grocery bag, we're talking to you. You're recycling public enemy number one. We don't actually process all of our recycling on U.S. soil. We send about a third of it overseas to countries who are willing to pay for the stuff. One big-time buyer of our recycling, of recycling from countries all around the world, is China. China dominates world manufacturing. That takes a lot of plastic, paper, cardboard, rubber, and metal. And for a long time, it was cheaper for the country to repurpose used materials than to create brand new stuff. But at the same time, pollution is a huge problem in China. They've got enough waste issues of their own without adding all of the unusable and sometimes hazardous material that came along with our recyclables. So they started to do something about it. In 2011, they launched Green Fence, a program that aimed to carefully inspect all imported trash. In 2016, they tightened import restrictions. In 2017, a ban on certain imports. And finally, in 2018, they announced a new program with a new name, National Sword, which tells you exactly how seriously China is taking their waste problem. It calls to mind some colossus straddling a harbor with some kind of trash-specific thou-shall-not-pass thing going on. The program bans all sorts of plastic and lowers acceptable contamination to practically nothing. It means that the country is going to prioritize recycling its own waste over that from other countries. So just recently, China has um, put into effect a new threshold on the level of contamination that they're willing to accept on their imports. This is Lisa Wolf. She's also with EcoMaine, where we started this episode. 
Ecomain, like so many companies, has a single stream MRF. And theirs is pretty good. It gets a lot of contamination out. The typical standard has been more like 3 to 5% contamination. So this is really creating a bit of a crisis for the recycling industry as a whole because we're all set up to manage to that demand for 3 to 5% contamination. And now China is saying we will only accept half a percent. So that's, that's really where we're at right now. In other words, China doesn't want to be our trash can anymore. And at EcoMaine and everywhere in the United States, that means our trash is piling up. One of the things you'll notice when you go up there is there's quite a bit of paper on hand. Lisa told me that EcoMaine has been finding buyers elsewhere. Thailand, Vietnam, India. It's slow going, but they haven't had to landfill anything yet. The unique thing about EcoMaine, though, is that they're a nonprofit. Their focus is keeping stuff out of the landfill even when it costs them money. But for most of the world, recycling is big business. And that business isn't looking so hot right now. You'll see that the 2016 fiscal year price was $101 per ton. In 2017, that went down to $51 per ton. Now we're looking at zero, sometimes having to pay $11 a ton to to get rid of the paper. Remember, recyclable materials are a commodity. And what happens when you take millions of tons of product out of one big market, China, and pour it into smaller markets like Vietnam and Thailand? The market floods. Value takes a nosedive. Up here in the Northeast, when you start sniffing around the recycling industry, everybody tells you to talk to this guy. Uh, My name is Mike Durfor. I'm the executive director for the Northeast Resource Recovery Association. The NRRA, two R's there, was formed back in 1981 in New Hampshire with the idea of helping municipalities get their recyclables to market. Mike's been here since 2008. And the message on my phone says, now's a great time to be in recycling. Everybody thinks I'm totally crazy. Mike admits he has a hard time defending this position. The restrictions in China mean that processing has slowed down big time. The same amount of waste is coming in, but it takes much more effort to get the product in better shape. Not to mention the fact that you need humans to do a lot of that sorting. And that's all on top of the value issue. And the price went from 35 a ton to 70 a ton for a week, and then it went to 90 a ton the next week. And folks that are trying to budget for that are really caught because they can't. You can't foresee that kind of cataclysmic impact on the recycling market. Remember, your town used to save money by recycling. That's because waste haulers used to be willing to pick up our newspapers and milk jugs for free because they could turn around and sell them for a profit. But with the market for recyclables now upside down, haulers are charging to pick up recycling, and towns are looking at costs they never expected. And suddenly, doing the environmentally friendly thing isn't going to make the taxpayers happy anymore. We had a discussion yesterday with the municipality, and they're paying a uh, about $105 a ton for single-stream recycling. And at the same time, they have a contract for their municipal solid waste, their trash, for $68 a ton. So if it's going to cost you 105 over here and only 68 over there, you're probably going over there, especially if you have a tight budget. And this isn't just pure conjecture. There are warning signs that this could soon be happening in the U.S. Just because we're ethically committed to recycling doesn't mean we can be practically committed to it. 
What's happened in a number of states in the United States is that they have bans on throwing recyclables of any kind into landfills. And what we're seeing is in those states, they're currently issuing waivers in some cases to the haulers saying it's okay to throw it away now because uh, we know you don't have a market to take it to. We don't want it on the side of the road. We're hoping the markets will come back, and when they do, then the waivers will be rescinded and go back to business as usual. When we went to single stream, we were trying to make it easy to do the right thing. But now the contamination problem is threatening to torpedo the markets that make recycling work. Some recycling programs have already started asking residents to leave certain things out of the bin. Marion County in Oregon has banned shredded paper, egg cartons, milk boxes, and most plastic from the single stream bins. Madison, Wisconsin has banned plastics like five-gallon buckets and children's toys. In the Australian state of Victoria, a waste hauler suspended collection entirely. Ireland, which was used to exporting 95% of its recycling to China, warns that it's on the brink of a waste management crisis. That was an excerpt from NHPR's Outside In podcast from their episode One Bin to Rule Them All. Visit nextnewengland.org to find the full episode. Oh, and a quick note of congrats. Hannah and her co-host Sam Evans-Brown were presented with an Overseas Press Club Award for International Environmental Journalism for Powerline. That's their four-part series on hydropower in Quebec, which we featured right here on Next. So congratulations, guys. The executive producer of Next is Katie Tolarski. Production help this week from Lily Tyson and Ali Oshinsky. Good luck at Marketplace, Ali. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. With support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone, through the Smart Family Foundation of New York, and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio. 